morning. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Psalm, chapter 13, Psalm 13. <clears throat> so uh, about 10 years ago, we were, visit- we were driving from St. Louis to Lincoln, Nebraska to see my little brother graduate from college. And uh, that's a long haul for a little boy, Wesley's age at the time. He was about four years old, four or five years old. And uh, we were trying to get him, just, just give him some kind of hope to endure this terribly long drive. And I kept telling him, Wesley, when we get there, you're going to be able to go swimming at the hotel. There's a pool. You're going to be able to swim. It's going to be awesome. And uh, we kept telling him that. And so about every, you know, 20 minutes for the whole trip, he's are we there yet? You know, you know the thing if you've ever driven with kids. And, uh, and we finally arrived, and we, before we got to our hotel, we stopped and met my brother on campus at the University of Nebraska there, and, uh, and uh, we're sitting there, my, bro- my brother and I are sitting there talking and not paying attention to what Wes is going, what Wes is doing, or in fact, I just noticed, well, Wes isn't around, and I look over, and he's stripped down to his undies, and he's in a fountain, and uh, uh, he thought that, and I was like, what are you doing? He's like... I'm swimming. <laughs> like, like you told me when we got here, we were going swimming. And uh, so, so he went swimming. Well, I, I, I bring that, that story up to you this morning because what I'm going to do today is one of the things actually that I think is, is probably the most sacred trust that you place in someone who's teaching you God's word. You know, uh, uh, last week, I think it, yeah, it was last week, we, we talked about uh, Jesus was really criticizing these leaders that, he, that, that, that were just doing awful things to the people's conscience. And uh, one of the things that they were doing was, uh, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 20, that you tie heavy burdens on men's backs and then do not lift a finger to carry them yourself. Uh, what he was getting at there was he was he was talking about the way that that bad leaders put extra rules on people, put extra expectations on people, and then expect them to sort of like carry those things and, and carry them joyfully throughout the christian life and and so one of the, the the most sacred things i think is 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 when you're listening to someone when you when you're showing up every week to listen to somebody i think one of the things to be the most careful about is what are the expectations that are being placed on me are those biblical expectations it's okay to be called to higher things right it's all it's okay to be called to higher level we want that uh it's just important that we understand that are those expectations biblical or not because if they're not biblical then the power of god's not there to help us walk in those things and we are just going to feel just burdened and overwhelmed. And, and really, honestly, uh, we're going to start to just really miss the whole point of the gospel. So over the past several weeks, as we've gone through, uh, the, continued through the book of Luke, I've called you to many hard things. And I've called you to those things because they're in the Bible and they're in the text before us. And, and I haven't gone fishing for those. And they just are where they are. And I'm working through Luke. And here they are. And so I call you to them as I've been called to them myself. Today's a little different because today I went fishing for, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not calling you to something hard. That's because it's in Luke and we're working our way through Luke. I'm, I'm leaving the book of Luke to find this particular thing to talk to you about, because I believe this is central to uh, our future as a people of God. And let me tell you what that is. 
I think in order to grow into the people of God that he's called us to be, we have to raise our expectations of God and of this time and of our own personal experience in Christ. And that's, that's, that's critical and also a bit scary. You see, anytime we raise our expectations, we also raise what? Our possibility or even likelihood of being disappointed. Anytime we raise our expectations, we raise the likelihood that we will be frustrated, that we will be disappointed. But what I want to call you to today uh, is to raise your expectations on what it means to experience the presence of God. And I want to do that by showing you David's concern describing this issue in Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In this psalm, we see that David feels as if God has forgotten him. He says, how long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? What does it mean when it says, how long will you hide your face from me? Well, this is introducing a really important category into our understanding of God and understanding of experiencing God. And that has to do with the presence of God. You see, in the Old Testament, the word presence and the word face are actually kind of the same word. And most of the time when in the Old Testament you see the phrase, the face of God, what it's referring to is the presence of God. So here's one principle I want to introduce right away this morning, and that is this. When we talk about the presence of God, we could be talking about one of two things. We could be talking about the omnipresence of God. Well, what do I mean by the omnipresence of God? I mean the theology, the true doctrine that God is present everywhere. That would be reflected in a psalm like Psalm 139, where David says, where can I go to hide from your presence? Where can I go away from your spirit? But there's another kind of presence that the Bible talks about, and that's the one I want to talk to you about today. And that is sometimes referred to as the manifest presence of God. And the difference between the presence of God, the omnipresence of God, and the manifest presence of God is that the manifest presence of God has to do with our perception of God, has to do with our experience of God. So David, the same guy who wrote in Psalm 139, um, where can I go from your spirit, referring to the omnipresence of God, says in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence. How can he say both of those things? How can he say simultaneously, I can't ever be away from your presence while also being concerned that he is going to be cast away from the presence of God? That's because David is referring to two different experiences of the presence of God. One is a theological truth and the other is a tangible experience. Think about it this way. 
There's a really big difference. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, hopefully you, you felt this difference. There's a difference between this statement, God is everywhere, and this statement, God is here. Have you experienced the difference between those two statements? God is everywhere and God is here. John Piper writes, there is a sense in which God's presence is not with us always. For this reason, the Bible repeatedly calls us to seek the Lord, seek his presence continually. This seeking of the presence wouldn't even need to be a command if God's presence if by God's presence, all they ever meant was this ongoing sense of God being everywhere. This is something else. God's manifest, conscious, trusted presence is not our constant experience. There are seasons when we become neglectful of God and give him no thought and do not put trust in him and we find him unmanifested. That is, unperceived as great and beautiful and valuable by the eyes of of our hearts. So when David says in our psalm, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's talking about this special kind of presence, the manifest presence of God. But this brings me to an important point. Again, I don't want to throw burdens on your back and say, You should be experiencing something you're not and just leave you there. I want to ask, Well, what does that even feel like? How do you measure success? You ever tell your kid to do something and then realize afterward that you didn't really articulate how they were supposed to do it or what doing it looked like? Clean your room is a very nebulous term. Sometimes you have to say clean your room and your closet and under your bed to make it clear that what you don't mean is put all your stuff under your bed. This isn't all about Wesley today, by the way. Uh, I don't want to say experience the manifest presence of God. You're not, you're not experiencing like you ought to. Go, see it. Go, go, go figure that out. I want to say we are called to experience this, but what does that even look like? What, how do we measure success? How would we know if we're experiencing the manifest presence of God? Well, I, I came up with three, three things that I think might help you. First of all, it is a theologically true experience, meaning... Experiencing the manifest presence of God is never uh, in contradiction to what Scripture commands us to do. We would never say that I'm experiencing the manifest presence of God, therefore I'm throwing an entire worship service into disorder and confusing a bunch of people who don't know what's going on. That, that would not be in, in, in keeping with the Scriptures. There's, there's a way that God brings His presence into us, but it is theologically consistent with His Word. But the other thing I would say is that it's tangible. It, it's something you feel. It's something you experience. Uh, and the third T for you, it's, it's theological, it's tangible, but it's also terrible and or terrific. And here's what I mean by that. that those two words, terrible and terrific, have the same root word, and, and, and it has to do with a sense of shivering. Okay, so, so there's this sense of something sending chills down your spine. There's this sense of something. This is experience. This is a tangible, physical experience. This isn't just a theological truth. This is something we are talking about experiencing. So those three T's. It's theological, it's tangible, and it's either terrible or terrific. And we'll talk way more about all of those things in the coming weeks. Here's the idea, though. 
Between those three truths, there is a lot of wiggle room and there's a lot of uncertainty in between those three things. Sometimes God's manifest presence is kind of like an Isaiah 6 experience. Uh, Isaiah 6 says, Behold, uh, uh, woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the king, uh, you know, the God of Israel. Like he, is, he just feels undone. He feels unclean. He feels unworthy to stand in the presence of God. But sometimes the manifest presence of God is a little bit more like what Elijah experienced. Um, God tells Elijah, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord's there. The Lord's present. His manifest presence is here. But listen to this. And a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. You see, in that particular experience, the, the experience of God's manifest presence wasn't earthquake-like. It wasn't mighty wind-like. It wasn't fire-like. It was experienced. It was tangible. It was known, but it was more whisper-like. So the, the, the manifest presence of God is theological. It's always going to line up with Scripture. It's tangible. You will feel it. And, and it's kind of got a, a terrible-slash-terrific feeling to it. I don't want to get more specific than to say that what differentiates the omnipresence from God from the manifest presence of God is this sense of, oh, God is here. And I know that. And I, I perceive that. I want to leave, leave our definition there for now. So, for instance, in Revelation 1.10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? And why does he need to tell us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day? Why is that extra information necessary? And how did he know he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day? This sounds like something that he, he, he expects us to understand what he means, but also something that's worth describing or mentioning because at some level we need to know that piece of information related to the Revelation. I've got another scripture for you. This is a little bit longer. I think I've got a slide for it. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. What I want you to do as I read this is I want you to listen to this idea of God's presence, this kind of sense of God's felt, known, experienced presence. And I also want you to kind of think about well, what's, what's, what's really happening here and how is this happening? For this reason, I bow my knees. Paul's praying. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of a power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you see the manifest presence there? What does he mean when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? Is, is, is he asking for something that's already there, right? 
Again, we're walking in this strange balance where there's a theological truth. Christ already dwells in their hearts. And this tangible truth, this thing that they feel, this thing that they experience, God's presence, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And how does that happen? It happens through theology, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's a, there's a sense of, we're going to talk about faith a lot in the next few weeks. But it's this, it's this felt, known, tangible thing where it says uh, that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What does he mean by that? That you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowing? You see how we kind of fold in on ourselves and kind of move into a cycle of just, just, just feels like a lot of contradictions in all of this. And friends, let me just tell you, when you hit that wall, but you're reading the Bible, it's you, not the Bible. <laughs> right? You're going to hit that wall all the time when you read the Bible. And trust me, it's not the Bible, it's you. I don't know exactly how to describe this, but what I'm doing this morning is saying there is something that God has for us that we should be as a whole, walking away saying, God was there. Not simply because I'm trusting in the promises of God's word, but because God's presence was known to me in that day, in that gathering. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you and me to raise our expectations. And to do that, I have to do two things. The first one I think I've at least tried to do, and that is I need to show you the difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. So hopefully I've started that conversation. Hopefully you see that one is not necessarily the other. I'm going to go back to that again next week a little bit more. But the second thing I think I need to do to help you to see this, and the thing that's probably the most central to our text, is this. I need to show you that it is dangerous to go too long without experiencing the presence of God in this way. That's really the main thing I need to get to today. I need to show you that it is actually dangerous to go too long without experiencing the manifest presence of God. So look at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. I want to give you three ways that this is dangerous. It's dangerous to go without the manifest presence of God for too long. And the first one is, there is an inner poverty that exists when we don't feel the presence of God. An inner poverty that, that builds up, drains out, as we lack this experience of the presence of God. David says it this way, How long must I take counsel with my soul? How long must I take counsel with my soul? Friends, have you ever felt like you're in a one-way conversation in your spiritual life? Have you ever felt that, that there's just this sense in which there is, there's not the dialogue that you were created to enjoy with God? That there is sort of a, a one-person feel to your spiritual experience? You know, I have a question. This is kind of related to this, question, this point of, being, of danger. 
how long can you talk to yourself unless you, until yourself starts talking back? What I mean by that is, is that it is dangerous to engage in a quote-unquote relationship with God that has none of the markers of a relationship. And it essentially is this sense in which you are just sort of talking to yourself, taking counsel in your own soul, folding back in on yourself. You're trying to be faithful in your spiritual exercises. You're trying to be faithful in your spiritual disciplines. And we're going to talk all about this stuff too. I'm not, I'm not telling you not to do those things. What I'm saying is, is that you can only go so long in that until that actually becomes a problem. Until this sort of one-dimensionality becomes a problem. Friends, I think that the way I would describe all of this is, when David didn't experience the presence of God, he stopped and wrote a psalm about it. When we don't experience the presence of God, I think we call it normal. See if that's not true in your life. See if it's not true in your life that when we stop experiencing the manifest presence of God, we just call it, we call it normal. We might even call it spiritual maturity. Oh, yes, back then I felt all sorts of things for God. I felt God, etc. But I've grown beyond that now, and I'm all about the Word, and I trust in this. And, and there's only so long we can go in not experiencing the very thing God called us to experience until we start naming this messed up thing the new normal. And that's why one of the reasons why it's dangerous to go too long without experiencing the presence of God. There's a second reason, and that is not just an inner poverty, but also an outer vulnerability. I want you to see, I'm going to read these verses again, I want you to see how David's internal state is connected to the way he interacts with the world, specifically his enemies. Okay? How long must I take counsel, verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep. Lest my enemy say, I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. Do you see how his inner poverty creates an outer vulnerability? Did you see the word enemy appear a few times in that passage? This is the second reason why it's dangerous to go too long without experiencing the presence of God in a, in a tangible way because it actually puts you at, makes you vulnerable to the outside forces of opposition. It actually makes you vulnerable to your enemy. Friends, our culture is increasing in hostility toward Jesus. And I see Christians reaching for all the wrong weapons. <laughs> I see Christians reaching for the apologetic weapon. I love apologetics. I love the intellectual and logical components of our faith. But that's not the weapon you should be reaching for as the culture grows more hostile to Christ. I see people reaching for the political weapon and saying, well, we just need to rally around a political platform or a political party or, 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 or really be voting for the next Supreme Court justice and so on and so forth. Friends, you don't want to reach for the political weapon as the culture is hardening toward the gospel. The weapon of our warfare is the presence of God. That's what we have to work with. And if we're not experiencing the manifest presence of God, we become weakened before our enemies. It is stunning to see the number of battles in the Bible 
that are won or lost depending on whether the presence of God was manifest or not. Friends, I really want to tell you that I'm taking a diversion from Luke because I've been here for a few months now. I've been prayerful, seeking what the Lord would have me to say as we think forward, as I share vision with you. And I just want to tell you, point blank, I think this is it. This is it. This is the weapon of our warfare. This is the thing we do differently. This is the thing God's going to do next. We are going to seek the manifest presence of God together. And through that seeking, God is going to visit us, bless us, deepen our individual walks with the Lord, deepen our internal conversation with the Lord, and strengthen us as we advance into the world with the gospel. It's all going to be rooted in seeking the presence of the Lord. There's this moment in Judges where Gideon is... This is before Gideon's famous. Gideon's actually uh, threshing wheat, and he's, he's doing it in a way that shows us that he's actually hiding from the enemy. And uh, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, appears to Gideon and says, um, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. As Gideon's hiding from the enemy. And Gideon says, I, I love Gideon's response. He's like, well, it sure as heck doesn't seem like the Lord's with us. Because we keep losing ground and people. And the angel of the Lord responds, the Lord is with you. And then he says this, go in that strength and save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Go in what strength? The presence of the Lord. That's our strength. In Second Chronicles, the people of Judah found out that an enormous army was was just surrounding them and they were so overwhelmed they didn't even like reach for any other weapons. You know it's bad when you're being attacked and you don't even call the army because the other army is so big. It's 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 just pointless. And so when they find out that this army is just going to mow them down, Jehoshaphat gathers the people and they, the Bible says, sought the Lord, stood before the Lord, their little ones, their wives, their children. And the Lord speaks through a prophet and says, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Over and over again, as we see these battles unfold in the Old Testament, and quite frankly, spiritual ones in the New Testament, we see that victory or defeat is wound up in that question. Are these people walking in the manifest presence of God. So there are three reasons why it is dangerous to go too long without experiencing the manifest presence of God. The first is that it creates this, this, this inner poverty. The second is that it creates this outer vulnerability. And really, that, that explains so much about some of the things you're struggling with. You know, prayer doesn't make any sense apart from the manifest presence of God. At some point, you have to be convinced you're talking to someone. At some point, the Lord has to, in his kindness and mercy, 
affirm to you, you, a person with a body, with senses, with a pulse, you, the whole you, has to affirm to you that he is present. And did you realize that the act of evangelism is deeply bound up with this question of God's presence? Did you ever stop and think that one of the reasons why you're so scared to tell people about Jesus is because you feel alone? When Jesus tells the disciples, tells us to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded, what's Jesus' assurance? What's his promise? And behold, I am with you always. Friends, two of the main areas of life that you probably feel bad about not doing enough of, praying and telling people about Jesus, those two things are bound up in experiencing the manifest presence of God. And when you begin to sense his presence and when that becomes a reality in your life, those two things have more of a logical overflow from that experience. There's just this overall fragility. As we look at our text, David describes this in three ways. The first way is that he feels sorrow. He feels sorrow. Look at this. He says, how long, verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The Hebrew word for sorrow here means grieving. The fullest expression, have you ever thought about this? We walked with some friends through a very tragic death of a child, uh, a grown child recently, about a year ago. And what I saw in that experience is not this moment. This, this moment, the, the moment is, is terrible. It, 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 there's no words. But grief is when a movie comes out, when you see a trailer for a movie on TV and you think, oh, I want to take my son to see that. And then realize your son isn't here. Right? That's grief. Grief is missing someone. Grief is going throughout your day thinking, boy, that person would love that. Or, boy, I'd love to talk to that person about this. Or, boy, I wish we could go see that concert. You too, in September, Arrowhead. I wish we could go to that concert with this person. And then you realize this person isn't here. Well, that's what David's saying. This, this, this sense in which God's face is turned from him is resulting in this sense that he's walking around missing the presence of God. He's going throughout his day and he feels like his companion and his friend and the person that he does life with minute by minute, day by day, isn't there with him. God's face, his manifest presence is missing and he feels like a part of him is missing. So David feels sorrow. David also says that he feels sleepy. Look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Sleep the sleep of death. What's going on here? Well, it doesn't sound so clunky in the Hebrew. There's two different words for sleep. The last one, sleep of death, is death. The first one has this sense of growing weak, of fading, of feeling less and less alive. You know, on a completely unrelated note, I did some reading on something called andropause. Andropause refers to the gradual decline of testosterone in men over the age of 30. 
Did you know that men lose one point of testosterone every year after the age of 30? I mean, not all of you. Some of you guys, some of you older guys are way manlier than me. But, but that's like a medical thing. We, we lose that vitality over time. And the thing is, is that no guy ever notices being less vibrant, less ambitious, less aggressive. It happens so slowly you would never even know. And you're, you're compensating. You're dealing with it. You're just, you're just adjusting. You're just doing life the best you can. Yeah, you're way more tired today than you were 10 years ago, but whatever. Well, that's the kind of sleepiness that David's referring to. David's saying that because he's not experiencing the manifest presence of God, this sense of energy and vitality is missing from his life. And he fears that if God doesn't step in, it's going to keep fading and fading and fading and fading and fading all the way to death. You know, friends, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I'll tell you point blank. You might be closer to that than you think. It might have been so long for you since you've experienced this. You might have even turned off the expectation that this is important. Friends, I'll just be a little bit more doom and gloom. The American church might be close to this we might be really close to sleeping the sleep of death if we don't begin to experience the manifest presence of God. Everyone brings Second Chronicles, if my people will do what? What we don't hear in that often enough is to seek my face is literally seek my presence. That's, that's what God's calling us to do. Seek his presence. That's how God is going to help us both internally and externally. And David says, I feel sorrowful. I feel sleepy. I feel, I feel weak. I feel like I'm, I'm kind of moving into more and more frailty. And he also feels shaky. Verse 4. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David feels unsure. He feels like he's about to slip. He feels like his legs are about to give out. In Psalm 119, David says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. When God's manifest presence is there in David's life, he's a sprinter. But when he's not experiencing God's presence, he can barely stand. See, this is weakening, this uncertainty, this, this missing. Now, here's what I want to point, point out to you guys. David was a far more diligent soul keeper than you are overall, with a few notable exceptions. He noticed these things when they were gone. He stopped when he didn't feel God's presence any longer and wrote a psalm about it. You go to work tomorrow. And go on with your week and take your kids to soccer, baseball. You just do life. So that over time, you are every bit as sorrowful and sleepy and shaky as David was. Maybe more so, but gradually you've gotten used to it. And you've started to call this the new normal. You see why I introduced this by saying, I want to be careful not to put an expectation on you. That's impossible. I never want you to walk out of here and think, I've got to do something. I have no idea how to do it. And gosh darn it, I, I don't even know if this is... What I want to tell you this morning is, I just 
unpack this in the coming weeks. I'm telling you to do something that God delights in doing with his children. I'm telling you to seek something that God delights in giving. I'm just telling you it's time to seek it. It's time to seek it with a genuine sense of urgency. David is saying, essentially, this is no way to live, God. This is no way to live. I don't want to go like this any longer. And that's really what I want you to walk out of here saying. If it's been a long time, if if you're even uncertain where this fits in the Christian experience, I think at the very least, I want you to walk out of here and say, having a one-way conversation with myself, being supported only by ideas and not by any experience of divine reality is no way to live. God, would you help me to experience something different? I've been very direct and very, very pointed to you, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Look at the very beginning of Psalm 1, or Psalm 13, verse 1. Right before verse 1, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. David was writing this about his own experience. But he said, after he wrote it, this should go to the choir master because everybody experiences this. Everybody experiences this. Send this to the guy who leads the whole people in singing because everybody goes through this. Now, I want to be very careful and say, we all experience all sorts of things we don't want to keep. Saying we all experience this isn't the same as saying, so just be content and suck it up. You'll be fine. No, it's saying, I know you're here. Or I know you will be here. And I want you to see that this isn't the new normal. I want you to raise your expectations. I want you to have a sense of urgency about seeking the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Here's the funny thing. There's almost not anything you can do on the balance scale. This is all up to God. But you will have your hands full doing what you, doing the very little he's called you to. On the balance scale, what you are called to do won't measure up to anything. But you've got work to do. And next week, we're going to talk about the practicals on how we seek the presence of God. How you can begin to experience God's presence again. Today, I want to leave you with one specific practical, one specific point of application. Look at verse 1 and 2 one more time. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You know what the most practical thing you can do today to begin to experience the presence of God. Say how long to God over and over and over and over and over again. There's your point of application. When you leave this place and you spend your week out in the, out in the world doing your thing, friends, season your day with how long, O Lord. Four times in two verses, David cries out, Because he knows this is an urgent matter. He knows this has to change. He knows this is no way to live. He knows it's dangerous to go too long without experiencing as a a man, as a whole person, the manifest presence of God. He knows he must know God in a way that surpasses knowing 
And so he cries out, how long, how long, how long, how long? You know, back 10, 12 years ago when Wes was in the car, he cried out, how long? Over and over and over again. I think that was his first long trip. And you know what he got as a strange reward for his longing? He got to swim in two pools. (laughs) The whole timeline of his swimming was accelerated by his expectancy. (laughs) Because we didn't see a pool on the campus, but he saw a pool. And why did he see a pool? What changed a fountain into a pool? Expectancy. Longing. Friends, that's part, of the, that's part of this. That's part of this game. That's part of this, figuring this out. The more we expect and long for the presence of God, the more apt we will be to see his presence more clearly when it's there right in front of us. So application point, leave this place with longing. Go to the Lord over and over again and say, how long, how long, how long? And here's what I think you'll see. You serve a father. You, you, you are in relation to a father who loves you and is eager, eager to bless you with that. that the, what you're asking for is him, right? It's, it's a God-honoring prayer. And I don't want you to walk out of here saying, well, it could take forever, but I'm going to still do it. No, 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 no. I want you to say, how long, O oh Lord, lest I sleep the sleep of death? I need this. I have to have this, Lord. This is an essential part of walking with you. Our church has to have this, Lord. Without this for too long, it's dangerous. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Let's pray. Lord, we praise your name that you are faithful to not only uh, give us all sorts of amazing things that we don't even think about, but to direct us through your word to the treasure map, to point us to the things that are the best things, and tell us we ought to be asking for these things. Um, I, I feel, Lord, this morning you've just said, if, if you knew who was here and you knew the gift of God that was here, you would be asking for this. And so we come before you as a congregation, as brothers and sisters, and we collectively right now, Lord, say, how long, O Lord? Please, Lord, provide us with a tangible expression, a tangible experience of your presence. We could talk and debate and and slice this issue up a million different ways, and there are no question about it, dangers, potential abuses in this area. But you know what, Lord? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abuse one of your gifts tomorrow accidentally. Uh, I'm a sinner. I, I, I constantly veer off the road spiritually. But you are faithful to fill my life with good things. And so, Lord, we come before you knowing we will not, we, we, we will not handle this as well as we should, as wisely as we should. But we just pray that you would be faithful in and through and after your gift to us. We ask, Lord, that you would just fill our times together in particular with a sense of your presence. That you would give us a sense of urgency, that we would understand that, that, that there's one thing that uh, consolation's fine, but we don't want to settle. 
Lord. Increase our expectations for you. Increase our expectations for what you want us to expect. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You know, Jesus was never afraid to tell us to ask for big things. Some of the most confusing parts of the gospel involve Jesus telling us to tell mountains to move and ask for anything and you will have it. What's going on there? Well, that's a longer conversation than the introduction of communion. But at the base of what Jesus is saying there is this. I paid a very, very high price to make you right with the God of the universe so that you could call him Father. I paid a very high price to give you favor with the creator of all things so that you now can call upon that God and say, you love me. Don't deserve it, but you love me. And you want to care for me. And you want to bless me and give me good things. The Lord's table, as we'll see, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. The Lord's table is an expression of God's presence. It's an expression of God's presence. And we celebrate it as a reminder that God is present with us today. If you're here and you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, and we encourage you to participate in this table as a way of, of being reminded of what God wants for you. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would invite you right now to understand just I haven't said enough about it to convince you of anything, but maybe God's talking to you right now. And I would just invite you to listen to what he's saying because Jesus loves you and he wants you to walk with him. He wants you to know him, not just intellectually, but with your whole being. He's done all the work necessary so that you could come and enjoy him. And so I would invite you, if you don't know Jesus, I'd invite you just to take a moment and reach out to the Lord, and you will find him there. Give him total trust. Give him just total honesty. Be honest and understand that you are, you are a sinner. You have fallen so far short of his glory. You've fallen so far short of his standard. And that he would come to you today and offer you love and forgiveness and new life is just because he's awesome. So I would encourage you to call out to him as well. Come and partake of the Lord's table.